What can we expect from the UK's forthcoming investment zones and will they transform the fortunes of the eight city and regional economies set to host them? How do they fit into the bigger picture of UK area-based initiatives, the enterprise zones, free ports, and now growth and levelling up zones proposed for Greater Manchester and the West Midlands? And what does history tell us about what works and what doesn't? I'm David Marlowe and you're listening to LED Confidential, a podcast that tries to lift the lid on those intractable, enduring challenges facing those of us working in and on local economic development and placemaking today. And I'm Mike Spicer. Join us as we explore area-based initiatives, their role, potential and proliferation within UK economic development. Now, one person who is steeped in this topic is Pete Tyler, Professor in Urban and Regional Economics at the University of Cambridge. He's a veteran of policy reviews for the UK government, OECD, the European Commission and others, and he's here with us today. Pete, great to have you on the podcast. It's been a while, but I think the last time we met in person was at a seminar um, and you were presenting some of the lessons and evidence from the first wave of UK enterprise zones in the 1980s. How strong is the feeling of, of deja vu with all these these new zones? I think there are currently 48 enterprise zones active in England, uh, about 12 similar initiatives in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. There are eight free ports in development. Deja vu? Yeah, well... Yes, I, I do do feel sometimes that I've been looking at enterprise zones virtually all of my professional career. I, I started evaluating for HM government the first round of zones in the early 1980s. And um, although they were called an experiment, um, they must be the longest running experiment that one's ever seen. I mean, it's, um, they're still going strong as we are debating today and uh, over 40 odd years. So yes, I do feel that I'm pretty much joined at the hip with enterprise zones and I've spent a lot of time looking at them, well indeed around the world but particularly in the UK. And it is great to see you again Pete. What lessons have you drawn from all your evaluations and your analyses and and what works and what doesn't work? Is there any consensus and evidence-based decisions that you can make on the basis of your work? Yes, I think, David, I've learned a great amount, really, from my experience over the years. You'll all be aware that when they were originally launched in the 1980s, they followed very much on the idea of laissez-faire, you know, no restriction type zones where the free market would be allowed to operate relatively unfettered. And the idea was that they were a last-ditch attempt in many of those areas in the late 70s that were denied investment. And the government felt they needed a a new new way of looking at it, the conventional mechanisms of certainly standard forms of public expenditure and intervention which just weren't working. Um, they grew out of very much out of the, um, they were the brainchild, of course, of one of our greatest planners, Sir, Sir Peter Hall, um, who I think it was in the, uh, to a town of country planning meeting in Chester in the late 1970s, introduced them as a concept. And uh, HM government at that time, the Thatcher government, seized on them in the early 80s. And so they, they began as this experiment really in removing market restrictions. But in reality, they ended up in becoming quite a state-inspired interventionist model. And of course, they were powered by a substantial amount of incentives. And over the years, I think we've learned quite a lot about how those incentives work. I think we've also learned a tremendous amount about really how 
a zone type policy, essentially being a, a land and property based inspired initiative. I think we've learnt a lot as to how we can make them work. And I suppose if it's one play I, play I have over the many years I've been in, involved with them, it is that we learn we learn lessons that we build on the experience of what has worked over those years. Because I think we know a, a very large amount from both the UK but also around the world. Just thinking about the the, the proposed investment zones, um, it, it's hard to keep up sometimes, isn't it, with the nomenclature of them all, given all of the different different types of initiatives. Have you had a chance to sort of digest what we currently know about the kind of incentives that are likely to be on offer? Because it, it seems at the moment that sort of the, the, the things we do know is, is roughly where they're going to be in terms of the city regions that they'll be based in. But how, how do we know anything about how they will differ from previous zonal initiatives? Yes, I, I think we, we know quite a lot about how they, they, they are somewhat different, but in some ways similar. So I think if we go back to the original enterprise zones in, in the 1980s, one thing they was they had, of course, was freedom from st- standard town and country planning requirements. But they also carried with them some powerful fiscal incentives. So they gave rate relief, and they also gave capital allowances. And those those incentives proved over the years to be quite effective in many ways in bringing investment to these zones. And it's quite interesting to look at the new zones and see what lessons governments learned or or not about how those incentives worked. There's a lot I could say about them. For instance, many of these property-based, incentives-based as they are on taxation, they often do end up becoming internalised in in prices that people pay for real estate. This process of internalisation does actually, to some degree, change the the relative uh, nature of the incentives. But I think one of the biggest things I've learnt is how capital allowances could work to stimulate investment. And so I think that's one area which, if we have a few moments today, it's worth drawing out uh, quite how the new zones compare with the zones that were in the 80s, and where I think the new zones uh, suffer from some short, short shortfalls. I mean, that was going to be my next question, really, Pete, because you, know, you mentioned that we've learned a lot. You know, to what extent do you see that learning embedded in you know, not just what was in the budget statement, but they also published the methodological analysis of how they selected these zones and then the policy parameters of the zones. You know, is there learning in there? And can we be confident that that learning will be translated into the final area-based initiative? Well, certainly there's, there's things to learn about how you can use zones to create local economic development and very much how the size and the scale and the infrastructure and the selection of the land, how all that matters at the beginning in terms of the success you can have over the lifetime of the zone. So there's plenty to say about that. I think one of the other things to say, though, is very much to talk about the way in which the incentives work, and particularly the capital allowances. Now, in the early 1980s, the original zones gave tax breaks on investment in property. And so you had a 100% upfront uh, tax break on investment in property. Now, um, the new zones don't give that. They have they give tax breaks for plant and machinery, but they don't give uh, tax breaks on investment in property. And in the early 80s, what we discovered in the evaluation work at that time, and I've never seen this change really, what we discovered is that the way in which the tax breaks on property worked was to increase the new flow of funds effect. 
into the zones. So in other words, we found that, the, for instance, investment EZ trusts were set up, which sought to bring together investors' money to use that substantial uh, tax break on the investment in property to bring new, new funds into these zones. Now, the new zones give planter machinery tax breaks, but in fact, the new zone tax break is, is largely, it looks to us anyway, it looks as though it's uh, not much, it's not going to be much different to what's have been made available in the budget to investment in property machinery anyway. So I think both the new investment zones and the freeports, their actual capital allowance breaks are relatively weak compared certainly to what was on offer in the very first zones that one was looking at in the 1980s. And just, uh, it'd be good to, to hear, Pete, as well, about your thinking on how we go about selecting where these zones are. One of the running themes of, of this podcast has been the way that the government likes to do competitions for everything, funding for this and funding for that. Uh, and, and I suppose from a local government perspective, if you see these kind of area-based initiatives as one means of getting investment into your area, getting funding, because there's also grant funding available, I think, with the investment zones. Is that the right way to do it? It, it, Or do we need to find some other way of identifying which areas could best benefit from these sorts of initiatives? Well, in seeking to get new investment into areas, it's always a question of weighing up the, the need and the opportunity available in the area. So obviously you want to get investment into the high need areas, but at the same time it will take time to build opportunity for new investment to wish to cumulatively go there. So choosing zones I think is always difficult, but of course since the objective is really to help uh, often regenerate areas with underlyingly strong potential, then what one needs to do is to recognise that um, it's going to take time, build for the long-term strategy I think is crucial and select sites and zones which have got um, are going to join up eventually into an effective development project. I think what we've learned from earlier zones, and certainly the early 80s zones, was sometimes there was a tendency to pick sites um, that were too fragmented, that needed very high remediation in the early years. So it took quite a bit of time to get sites together to be effectively marketed and, 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 and offered out there in the market. So what's important to do when selecting a zone site is first of all make it big enough to allow substantial growth over the years, but also to enable um, early opportunity development so that you're not spending the early part of your loan zone life, which, which of course is ticking away on your benefits, particularly on rate relief, make certain that you've got plenty of scope to bring things in and you're not spending many, many, many years just remediating land while the benefits are ticking away. So the actual physical side of selection of lands and, and how well they're accessed and building them into a longer-term local economic strategy for an area is absolutely crucial, wherever they are. The new zone sites are, I believe, 600 hectares, which uh, is, is a fair size, and avoid some of the rather small zone sites we've had in the past. But of course, again, they do need to be positioned so that they can maximise access to opportunity, have good communications. I see that the zones will be able to, the authorities will be able to decide how they apportion the money they're being given in terms of how they use it on expenditure on the zones and how they break it out by instrument. So again, it will be important to make certain that there's substantial attention paid to quality infrastructure to make these zone areas attractive places. 
in the first wave of enterprise zones, there were quite a large number of them commissioned. You'll, you'll know better than I do, uh, Pete, just how many of them over the years were commissioned. But in some of the places where we um, are like are going to have investment zones, we've also got free ports. We've also got enterprise zones. So you've potentially got three or even four types of area-based initiative, some of which overlap, some of which are close to each other. Does that present a challenge if one of the benefits of an area-based initiative is that it's a, it, it kind of it can play into a place marketing effort? Um, if you've got this confusion around the different types of incentives that are on offer. Yes, the, the, one of the very early lessons from zones was to uh, ensure that you try to avoid competitive boundary hopping and displacement. And I think the world, the world over, I mean, this is uh, often a criticism of zone policy, that it just displaces activity from one area to another. Uh, on the early evaluation work we did, we, we estimated that, roughly speaking, in those zones with their particular configuration and their incentive packages, it was often the case that about two-fifths of jobs could be displaced if you didn't think about that actively. Now, and, and indeed, in the very first zones, it was possible even to have retailing covered by the land use. Since then, a lot's been learned about how to minimise competitive displacement. And I'm quite pleased to see that the new zones have got a clear priority focus on the sectors they're going for. I mean, our evaluation work over the years, I think, and that many others, has shown that really, of course, you want to try and select activities that are part of your placemaking strategy for the area, ideally building on a good good industrial strategy, strategic view about what's going to work, but also bringing investment that uh, obviously is not going to be directly as far as you can help it, competitively displacing from nearby areas. And, and I mean, I think that is really what's got to happen these days with these zones. They've got to assume a place identity, as I would put it. And that should really, of course, ideally play into a good industrial strategic view about what sectors you're trying to encourage and what assets you've got to play into that. Yeah, I mean, I did think it was quite interesting that the current iteration of investment zones certainly suggest you know, five priority sectors. They suggest university-based or research-based anchors. And, and that is of, of different character to the very land and property based focus and the remediation focus that some of the earlier area-based initiatives were founded on, will that play out in, in the propositions that finally emerge? And I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? Because you mentioned the 600 hectares. As I read it, that's a maximum. So they might be smaller than that. But I mean, if it was 600 hectares and if it was fragmented sites, which I think are also not precluded, I mean, the, the total benefit on offer from government is 80 million quid. I mean, it's only about 120,000 quid a hectare. It's not all that much, actually. So, I mean, I guess in terms of our listeners, how do local leadership teams, how should they set about framing the proposition that they then want to negotiate with government in terms of establishing and operating the zone? Well, I, I should have probably emphasised at the beginning, of course, that one of the great advantages of zones is that they do put a spotlight on a place and they are universally understood around the world. I, I don't believe, I, I think at the, in America, I think there's 3,000 zone sites across 30 states. So, I mean, around the world, developers, investors, they know about zones, they understand them. So they are a powerful, they have a very powerful marketing edge. Now, as I've emphasised, it's very important to use that effectively. Certainly, 
the general view would be that if you pick large numbers of fragmented sites that do not offer a very coherent picture of the concept you're trying to promote, my own view would be that that is, is not maximising the benefits of zones. Equally, you've got to make certain that as zones, as the, hopefully the zone sites develop, that the space for build-on and development, uh, you can build yourself into a corner very quickly. Uh, but marketing, it's important to have some uh, sites that you can readily access and, and get out there. Equally, at the same time, if you are going to have some parts of your zone that need remediation, make certain that that's down the track a bit so that it's able to benefit after some time has gone by. I should also say that one of the interesting things with zones over the years is that government has shortened the length of the incentive profile. So it's five years now. It was 10 years on the original zone. And that 10 years, I think, gave a lot more leeway. I'm, I'm quite interested, really, on, on the, the idea behind the reduction. Of course, at the same time, what a lot of the zones since 2010, 11 onwards have been doing is they've been benefiting from using the 25-year ability to, for local authorities to use the tax uplift. Um, they've been benefiting from you being able to put that into tax incremental financing things and therefore finance new infrastructure. So, I mean, the infrastructure longer term is important and the way the funds are used. Um, but at the same time, the, the zone site policy and its marketing and how effectively you can get things moving are very important in the equation. If you don't do it right, I think you can waste a lot of time and a lot of the shelf life of the zoning instruments incentives. So it's important to get that right. Um, another point I'd mention in our experience is that it's important where possible that the land be in public ownership. Because again, you want to be able, you don't want to have problems of trying to buy the land and bring it into the process. And of course, that can lead to speculation in the price and all sorts of things. So it's better to have and designate your zone sites to be where possible land that's owned by the public sector. That does speed things up in terms of moving the development. It's a very important lesson of zones, I think. As I understand it, I mean, government has asserted five priority sectors. I think it's what um, green, digital, uh, advanced manufacturing, Life sciences. Life sciences and creatives. Um, and right. creatives. I mean, I suppose in some senses for me, and I don't know whether it's true for you and Mike actually, the one that is not normally in that mix was actually the creatives. Well, what would a creative zone or a creative themed zone look like? And is that a useful addition to the type of economic activity that can be encouraged by these types of incentives? Well, I'll, Mike, I'll let you pick that one up because it's, it's a tricky question. That was a difficult question. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is a it is a, diffi a difficult question, and you're, you're absolutely right to raise it, David. I mean, I guess there's there's a question of what kind of space do you need as as a creative company. Obviously, that's very different from the kinds of from the type types of companies that we've seen in the past move into zones. And where typically are they located? Because you you do associate creative, certainly large creative organisations or even collectives uh, that come together in in co working spaces and whatnot. You tend to associate them with city centres and places where you have a, a large agglomeration of activity so you know, some of the sites that are being put forward for the investment zones and i realize it's we're at quite an early stage of developing that at the moment 
they don't feel necessarily like they would fall into that kind of category. I don't know. It's it's, it's a tough one. What, what do you think, Pete? Well, I think because these these labels themselves can can subsume a large number of different things. I think the creatives and the digital agenda actually can come together in all sorts of ways. So it does, though, beg a very sound question or important question about how what Evers, Evers in college does fit into a, a sound understanding about what are the opportunities available in an area long term and how much you're going to build on existing strengths and opportunities there. So I, I think many areas will look to build out of things which, of course, are almost in their DNA or related to, to things they can encourage. So I, I suspect the idea is that one's not ruling out things that might require interface between diff- the, some of these different sectors, particularly the, the digital agenda. So I, I, ultimately, the thing to do is with the property, with the development is to ensure that there's a good mix of properties that are, are developed. But of course, that again fits into the long-term plan for the sites. And so the premise requirements are going to differ quite a lot across these sectors, I would suspect, and the degree to which there's partnership with other investors and developers, most notably, of course, knowledge-based institutions and other players at the local level. But I do think that the attention to the the nature of the businesses and the sectors that have been encouraged are very important. And what we don't want to see, as we've seen with some zones in the past, is really a lack of coherence. In, in the integration of those those that sectoral development, because you are you are trying to take and to, should be taking a long term view about what you want to do for that area with with these quite valuable incentive packages, and although as David said earlier that, that the amount of public money is not huge, I think if the tax breaks are used well and if the development is marketed well, they can do quite powerful catalytic things. Subject to the caveats I've mentioned. Can I come in with another question, really? So slightly moving the goalposts, but it's quite clear in my reading, at least, of the policy document that government will assess the proposals, at least partly by the strength and the viability of the leadership and governance of the zones. And in fact, it does even mention the desirability of looking at joint governance where an area, for example, has an investment zone, an enterprise zone, a freeport, or a mix of designated spatial geographies with special incentives. What have we learned about what makes good leadership and governance of these types of, of zones? Well, I think that's a very important point, David. Um, it, it, uh, uh, that's, it's clear with all the econo- local economic development, substantially well-founded partnership structures which bring the right stakeholders together are, are crucial. Um, zones are, as I said at the beginning, essentially a, a land and property-driven initiative, but to make them work, you're going to have to harness all of the resource base of a local area and you're going to have to have activities and actions that, that cover the training side of things, the broader infrastructure positioning and many other aspects. So the management, there's the management of the zone, but there's also the overseeing and, and development of the strategic vision for it. And I think you've got the a key measure of success will be how well the respective partners are coming together and seeing that in their longer term visioning and plans as well. So good, solid governance has been shown to be very, very important in zones. And if you haven't got that, then of course you can end up having a much slower de- development profile. But moreover, I mean, these days it's just it is very much about bringing together the the key partners. And if you ask me, what is one of the major issues or major outcomes you want from area-based initiatives? 
it is really to join up the partnerships in delivering all the things that's required, as you all know, for effective local development. Uh, if they're just seen as a, a property market thing, I don't think they'll work very effectively. That's not the way forward. Uh, increasingly, everywhere you go these days in the UK, there's shortages of, of, of res labour resource um, and so on. Uh, infrastructure issues are important. So all of that needs to be coordinated. And if they are going to be given, obviously, in some cases, uh, a particular knowledge focus, then again, coordination with the knowledge-based institutions, how they fit in and play into the local innovation ecosystem. All of that, longer term, is important. So to me, it's just essential that there be good mechanisms in place. And that's not, that's not just the, the land management aspects, though important they are. Uh, it's very much about understanding how you're, you're going to offer. Well, it, the old-fashioned phrase was a, a one-stop shop for investors coming in. I think that's as, as important as it ever was in economic development. I also believe if you go up and down the country, and it comes back to what I say about the land and property side, it's important that you have a, a good plan as to how these sites are going to be brought forward. Because I, as, as with you, I suspect over the years, I, I've worked for many different organisations, and often in many areas, there's a shortage of good quality land if an investor walked in tomorrow. So managing that, bringing it together, is all about the partners working effectively and, um, and, and long for the longer term. So I couldn't, I personally, I think it's essential, absolutely essential. And again, a, an aspect that I, at the moment that concerns me is it's very difficult actually to, to measure what's going on in zones, to see monitoring and, and, and that sort of aspect of it. In the 1980s, the government put in place a, a substantial monitoring system, which it maintained for many years, which enabled one to see progress, see what was going on. These days, it's very difficult to understand what's going on with these things and that's important not only for the public sector being invested but it's also important for individual zone managers to be able to learn from each other i think again as i'm sure a national audit office report would would say we desperately need more monitoring more bringing together of economic intelligence to to see how all these things can share experience it's something we, we've got not got very good at in the last 10 years in the uk and speaking of sh sharing experience, Pete, I was I was just thinking about you, you talked earlier about the sheer number of uh, enterprise zones in the United States, and I was thinking about actually when you look at the economic development scene in America, there are a whole there's a whole world of zonal based as uh, zonal initiatives that have yet to break on, on our shores just yeah. yet. <laughs> um, you you have accelerator zones now, um, which are based around universities. You have opportunity zones. Um, for regeneration. I, I guess my question to you is, if, if you scan the horizon of area-based initiatives as they are taking root in other parts of the world, do you see any of them coming to the UK anytime soon that hasn't been tried before? Well, interestingly, Mike, I've just been looking at the opportunity zones in the States, and there's a re couple of reports have just come out about the what's happening in very early, very early days in you know, the opportunity zones in the States. But um, as, as is probably not well appreciated, what these things do is largely work on allowing the deferral of uh, capital gains. Now, they work for the tax me mechanism. And in fact, if you're, prepared, if you're prepared to invest for 10 years, I believe, in an opportunity zone, you can effectively write off the whole of a capital gains charge. Now, this comes back to an earlier point I made about the successful feature of the early 80s zones. 
One thing that government had not appreciated at the time, but the evaluation showed clearly, was that the property capital allowances enabled these investment trusts to be set up, where people wishing, of course, to seek places where they could reduce the amount of tax they had to pay, were, were attracted to these particular initiatives. And it's exactly the same thing that seems to be working with, with the opportunity zones in the United States. So this way of using uh, people's willingness to invest in things, for obviously because they wish to get tax-efficient ways of investment, this is an important feature. I think this government's missed out with investment zones. I think the Americans seem to have got it right with opportunity zones because it does something in the States, which is there's a lot of private capital available in the States that will be seeking that sort of, uh, of opportunity. I think there's a, there's a lot of capital available in the UK to do it because in the 80s, we observed that with the 80s zones, but I don't see that in the current investment zone packages. And I think that's something government needs to, to look at. And it would be, I, I personally believe it would be an effective way of bringing a new flow of funds into these left behind areas or related areas and would begin to make a real difference. But the package we've got at the moment in the UK plays to relatively standard tax breaks, capital allowance breaks on plant and machinery that's not as easily fitted into that mechanism like the capital gains reduction in the rest of it. I mean, I think that's really, really interesting and useful. I guess I would put it back to local and regional leadership teams and indeed to the devolved governments because you know, it is to some extent for these places to make their proposals to the Treasury and to um, the uh, Leveling Up Ministry and so on. And, and you know, if there is evidence that some tweaks to the national model could improve the outcomes and indeed could deliver better government goals for these zones, then maybe, particularly for the devolved governments, I mean, why not, when you're negotiating with Her Majesty's government, make those proposals and see where they get to? Um, yeah, absolutely, David. I mean, so what opportunity zones do is they allow uh, individuals to redeploy capital gains. And if they're prepared to invest for 10 years, they don't pay the capital gain. Now, that is a way of using the tax me mechanism to bring in, as I said earlier, a flow of funds to areas that have been left behind that is not conventionally easily available. How that could be worked, the Treasury would obviously have to be central in the discussions, but it's that sort of discussion, particularly as we move to a more decentralised, devolved approach to this. It's that sort of thing that could have a big step change effect. As I said earlier, I'm somewhat, I suppose, I just find it a bit disappointing that the same ground is being trod with investment zones and free ports, as has been trod in recent years with the, the versions of enterprise zones. The benefits on capital allowances are important, but they are largely being subsumed anyway with changes in the budget to what's available everywhere. So they're relatively weak. And if there was a problem, I think that the zones, the new zones have got is that they, I think they are relatively weak compared to what's required. And, and the other point to make, coming back to an earlier observation you suggested about learning from experience worldwide, there is a very, very, of course, competitive environment out there now for this mobile investment, particularly as it relates to green infrastructure, as you can see with the American uh, position, which is really putting strong, strong incentive behind these things. So I, I do feel that although if they used well, the new zones can be effective, 
And there's lots of, to learn from the previous experience, which I would really hope people will learn from. Although they can be affected, they are relatively underpowered. How much that can be, that's up for de debate or discussion between devolved authorities and central government does depend how much at the end of the day the Treasury is prepared to be flexible on, on these, these sorts of issues. I, I mentioned many times in the last, uh, uh, when we had the, um, sec the round of enterprise sales in the coalition years, that the lack of being able to get tax break on property would hinder the flow of funds effects. And this capital allowance thing is, is the of the same order of, of issue. So we're playing rather old tunes here with these uh, capital allowances on plant and machinery. I think we need to play new tunes. I also think we're going to need more of these zones if they use them properly, and probably government will do that. But I do agree, David, they need to get the package right. And uh, I think they're playing with a rather old pack at the moment. Yeah, it was interesting because um, your last point about um, new ones in the future, because again, my reading of the policy guidance is the government was at least nominally open to proposals from areas that weren't designated. And one of the things that Mike and I have discussed from time to time on here is, you know, should you set a boundary at all? I mean, you know, if government policy was, for example, to pick up the opportunity zone point, to enable capital gains to be reinvested with tax breaks in levelling up type of areas, why actually do you need to designate a zone? Why, why, why create a boundary at all if you can make the business case? Maybe it should be enabled. It's a, it's a good point you make, David. Actually, because I remember in the nineteen eighties when I was talking to developers in some of the areas where the, there, were, the, there was the capital allowances on property investment, um, they they said exactly the same thing to me in those those days. They said, "Well, why can't we have this for the whole of this area?" Now, of course, you've got to be uh, you've got to be very much aware of the cost of the public exchequer, but of course. Again, in a world where public expenditure is going to be very limited supply, as it has always relatively has been, I suppose, the idea of using tax for gone uh, is always more attractive. And I think there's plenty of different ways we can be using that that in the future. So I, I, I would very much encourage, a bit like you suggested, that more attention be given to see how we can use what I keep calling this flow of funds effect that arise through the fortuitous use of the tax system. Uh, how we use that to the better advantagement of left-behind areas, I think, is important. Making more areas able to access those benefits, I think, are important because, as I remarked earlier, even for those zones that are lucky to get the, the ones that are offered now, those areas, there's only a small number, and we need more of them if they're going to prove effective. I think used well and with the right incentives, they could be effective. And, of course, the idea is by... Uh, as as you you will be well aware from listening to me before, the idea is that in the longer term, as you build the economic success of these these areas, then the enhanced economic activity may well more than pay back any any cost to the public exchequer. And I think that's the other important thing to realise here. We need, as with the levelling up debate more extensively, we need a longer term view about how we're really going to shift things at quantum if we're going to change the dynamic of the levelling up debate. And at the moment, these instruments are relatively underpowered for that task. Overall, they don't add up to enough to be able to shift that curve. So, David, yes, I would very much see that we are going to have to expand the emission, but do it in a way that has maximum effect. And I think there's still much to learn there. I think that's a really kind of good point to start to, to wrap up the discussion, this kind of how do you strike an optimal balance between the availability of 
of tax incentives across a broad area of the country, um, but also the potential for that wider availability to actually undermine some of the incentives because it's those zonal-based incentives aren't sufficiently more powerful than what's available elsewhere. I think it's a, re- a really kind of good one to wrap up with, but maybe this is an unfair question, but um, I'm going to ask it anyway. What would be, if we did, if we were able to recreate uh, or create zones with those more crunchy incentives, particularly around investment in property, um, as we talked about, and, and establishing those mechanisms for bringing in investment uh, into property. How many zones do you think we would need to have, or, or roughly what scale would we be talking about relative to what it is today? So I, I think I said at the beginning, I think there's 48 active enterprise zones currently in England alone. Would we be looking at a, a much bigger number than that? Well, I think you, you've got to see that, the, you've got to recognise, of course, as we all do, that the, the local tax base in England is, is relatively weak. So, uh, as we all know, the, the the level of discretionary resource available to local authorities to do what we call local economic development, particularly in the years of constraint, have been very small indeed. And yet the problems they've faced, obviously through restructuring, deindustrialization, have been absolutely enormous. So, it's just... I mean, we've just recently, as you know, produced a book looking at 90 years of levelling up policy, and and I think we estimated that on average, the in real terms, the amount of money discretionary funding for levelling up has been of the order of about four or five billion. You know, th- this is tiny in relation to the scale of the problem. So, given the scale of the problem and given the enormity of it, particularly now in a, following COVID on the high street and everything else, I mean, we. The, the need for resource is just so significant in this equation and relatively small amounts of discretionary funding from central government in the modern the way we've had historically is just not going to do it. So we've got to find ways by which more resources can be realised realized by local authorities and local stakeholders to get this into the mix, particularly if we're going to move forward as the nation we want to be. Now, to do that requires a lot more effective use of, of tax systems and other things. And we've not really started to look at that. So whether or not you call this zone-based, I don't know. Uh, as I've said, some of the zones we've seen in the period since 2010 have been able to use the ability to u- build out of the 25-year growth in tax their, their, their business rate. They've been able to use that to fund tax incremental financing uh, infrastructure initiatives. And I think we need more and more of that, however it's brought about exactly whether or not that has tight spatial boundaries and what they are is another interesting question. But one thing I am absolutely clear about is that the volume of resources needs to change by a substantial quantum and that is not happening at the moment. And, and otherwise we will not seek that we will not get anywhere near the degree of levelling up that we are wishing to see. I mean, I'd like to finish actually on that, almost on that note, but with a slightly different take on it because we have spoken about levelling up here. And fundamentally, the investment zones, the free ports, the enterprise zones of the 2010s actually were about growth, whereas to some extent, levelling up at least is about inequality and about regeneration, community renewal and so on. And I suppose my last question for your observations, Pete, was, was really about that. I mean... 
are growth-oriented zones ever going to really address some of the fundamentals of leveling up in left-behind places? And, and you know, in, in a sense, um, I think it was the West Midlands Trailblazer proposes leveling up zones as one of the things that they want to negotiate with government. Is there actually more of a case if your focus policy focus is leveling up to look much more at regeneration and renewal than it is at the sort of priority sectors and all of those knowledge-based investments that are implied by investment zones? No, no, I, I, I think things are really come round and go round here. We, we, we need obviously to generate economic development and growth at the local level, and that is essential. That's just essential. It is the case, though, and we've we've been there before. That I think with all the other aspects that relate to economic growth, including the health, the education agenda, and all of those things, they need increasingly to find ways by which more of resources given to the the, the needs of of left behind areas. And and again, this is tied in with the point which we've so I've explored a lot over the years, which is how you can get mainstream government departments to more effectively recognise local need across these other things in their areas. And I would suggest that by the levelling up uh, local area funds they're talking about here, this is achieving another part of the of a very essential bringing together of all of this, which is that it's, it's about bending the mainstream spend to more effectively tackle local need, which of course as areas become more economically well off, hopefully that itself assists with the process of reducing all the more negative aspects associated with low economic opportunity. So I, I, I think whatever way you look at it, we are looking at here, here, how we actually get funds, whether from public sector, the mainstream ministries, or from the market to flow more effectively into these places uh, to overcome the higher levels of need they've got. And then eventually, as more opportunity is, is established, then ultimately the thing becomes virtuous, more and more virtuous. But at the moment, what we've what we've got doesn't work that way, and unfortunately, it's, it's not going to work that way unless we, we make a step change in what we do. Well, look, I mean, um, it's been fascinating to reconnect with you, Pete, and to get your thinking on uh, investment zones and how they all fit in. Mike, any last words from you? There's just a lot to digest there, uh, Pete. Great to have you on the show, and as David says, it's great, great to reconnect, and and you know, now now is a time where that kind of expertise and, and that historical perspective on the role of uh, area-based initiatives, their potential, and the sort of, I, I really found it useful to kind of surface those, you know, here are some solid principles for good design of zones. And to hear it laid out like that, I thought was really, really helpful. And of course, in the bonus material that will be available uh, for listeners uh, to this podcast episode, we will be sure to bring that out in the write-up of the podcast episode. Yes, well, again, if I've got one plea, if I may, it is that we do learn from the past because it seems to become quite unfashionable not to look back more than five years. And here we've got 40 years of experience to look back on at least. And we were, we were the world leaners in the enterprise zones. So there you go. On, on that happy note, <laughs> um, thanks again for coming on LED Confidential. I'm David Marlowe. You can contact me at David Marlowe at thirdlifeeconomics.co.uk. And I'm Mike Spicer, and you can connect with me through my website, which is www.policydepartment.com. <laughs> <laughs>